Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I'm recording this podcast in Bulgaria, and I'm in a room with quite high ceilings and a bit of distant traffic noise, so if you hear all sorts of weird stuff going on in the background, uh, that's why. And a bit later on, I'll explain why I'm here. Uh, Now, while I've been away, uh, one of the many notable events that occurred was, of course, the tragic crash of a Taipan helicopter with a loss of four lives during exercise Talisman Sabre. And I posted a short piece online. I'll elaborate on that as carefully and tactfully as I can, because clearly this is a major incident that's now under investigation. I wrote previously about the ditching of a Taipan back in March in Jervis Bay off Nara and pointed out that my research showed that that helicopter uh, had not received a software update that was meant to prevent um, engine failure in certain circumstances. Now, that's not to say that the lack of a software update caused that incident, but it's nevertheless um, a bit of a coincidence, you'd, you'd have to say. Now, helicopters are, are fickle beasts. Like all aircraft, they fly relative to the air, so they have to deal with downdrafts and things like that. Um, perhaps the best example that I can give you is that the uh, mission to kill Osama bin Laden, um, Operation Neptune Spear, involved the loss of um, a heavily modified Black Hawk helicopter during the raid. That was one of the most expensive helicopters on Earth because of the modifications. It would have had one of the best pilots ever, and yet one of them went down because of a thing called a ring vortex syndrome. Again, a sort of a lack of air underneath the helicopter. And that came about because when training for the mission was taking place, rather than having a brick wall representative of the actual compound, they used a chain link fence. Just that difference was enough to lead to the complete loss of the aircraft. No one was killed in that one, but it just shows what can happen. So with the Naura ditching, one can, well, the, the, I mean, some facts are known. There was an engine failure. It was close to the surface. The pilot at least had enough time to manually deploy the flotation devices, land the helicopter, ditch the helicopter. Everyone got out with minimal problems. Now, the crash of the Taipan during Talisman Sabre strikes me as being totally different. It looks like it was a very high-speed accident. There was no opportunity to deploy the flotation devices. There seems to have been no, no advanced warning. Now, it's under investigation, as I wrote, and as I repeat now, I'm not going to preempt any of that. I'll just make the comment that these sorts of night-flying exercises are fraught with danger, takes people with a lot of skill and a lot of nerve to be doing this sort of stuff, and they're just inherently risky. Now, that doesn't rule out a number of other things. There might have been a major mechanical failure, again, at high speed, low altitude, just no chance to recover. People have asked, yeah, could it have been a a software problem? Again, I I don't know. 
things can go wrong with flight control systems. Probably the, the best contemporary case is the Boeing disaster of the 737 MAX series, where it was the software that, that caused two planes to crash, and there were a couple of other near misses. Anyway, in this particular case, the chances of that happening would seem to be fairly low, because I'm not aware of, of major flight control modifications. 500 Taipans and various configurations are, are, are flying, ruling nothing in, nothing out. I'm just sort of listing things, if you like, in order of probability. And I would have to say, I'll, I'll just circle back and say those night flying exercises are, are, are terribly perilous. There have been advances in night vision goggles, but still you get a monochromatic view of the world. You're very uh, limited in your field of view. Depth perception uh, is an issue. It's not particularly good, not for me anyway, using night vision goggles. And so I'm just trying to create or give people a feeling for just how dangerous and how difficult these exercises can be. If any aspect of this report has caused distress, you can call the Defence Member and Family Helpline, the number of which is 1-800-624-608. Another thing that occurred while I was away was OSMIN, the annual Australia-US talks. And again, I have to take a deep breath when talking about this. Some people ask, am I uh, anti-US in my views? No, absolutely not. I consider myself you know, pro-Australian. I just want the best result for this country. The security relationship that we have with the United States is the most important that we've got. Uh, no problem with that. No argument with that whatsoever. It, it, it's just I find it more than annoying when Australian officials and politicians just seem to go weak at the knees over these things. And I notice that on the US side of things, Anthony Blinken again trotted out the old formula that the US has no better friend than Australia. And, and the reaction here seems to be, oh, that's fantastic. We've got this special relationship. No people. It's so obvious and it's so formulaic. That form of words is non-exclusive. The United States, just insert name of country that you're visiting. The US has no better friend than the UK. The US has no better friend than Canada. The US has no better friend than France. Okay? It's just a diplomatic form of words, and it doesn't signify anything in particular. Now, the reality is that, yeah, we're a close ally of the United States, and it depends pretty much on circumstances where we are in the list. Certainly in the top 10, I would say, if we were to look at the Asia-Pacific region, who else? Japan, yeah. My ranking would put Japan as the number one ally of the US given given the, the pushback against China. South Korea has to rate in the same category because their military capabilities are way ahead of what Australia has. I mean, just because we speak the same language and we have we we watch all of the American sitcoms and we all eat McDonald's, well, in very rare circumstances in my case. Uh, we, we somehow seem to think that uh, that we've got this amazing one-on-one -on -one relationship. No, calm down, everyone. It's a strong relationship, but let's just not overrate it. And I say this to people from the United States. 
whether it's Lloyd Austin or, or anyone else, if they really wanted to prove to us how special the relationship is, here are three suggestions. Rather, under the AUKUS agreement, rather than sell Australia second-hand Virginia-class submarines, how about selling us new ones? The second thing that you could do if you were true friends would be say no thanks to the $3 billion that we're contributing to the US shipbuilding industry. A genuine ally would say to us, listen, your economy is so much smaller than ours. You, you keep that money, you spend it on your own industry, we're big enough to take care of our own needs. And the third point, uh, and I can't st- uh, stress this often enough, the third point would be we will take back the US-built submarines and we will dispose of them using our existing infrastructure. We will relieve you of the burden to build your own very expensive, very complex uh, nuclear waste management site. There are three that there, if the US wanted to prove how good a friend they were, they would volunteer to do those three things. I see no evidence of that whatsoever. We're going to be paying through the nose for a whole lot of these things. Now, look, on that theme, I was recently, and this is a bit of gossip, but you know, I suppose that's part of the point of podcasts. I was talking to, I'll just call the person a defense insider. And it was pretty depressing stuff because on the, the topic of the nuclear waste facility, waste dump, I said, how are we going to do it? Uh, the answer was, well, it'll just work itself out. I mean, what a cop-out. Surely we aren't making decisions just based on this vague, oh, it'll work itself out. There needs to be something more than that. Uh, on that theme, I'm starting a little segment called Questions That Defence Refuses to, to Answer. And this is, a, you know, it happens all the time. Just to give you a feel for, for how difficult it is getting any information on July the 17th, I put in three questions, which I think are just the most basic things that every Australian would like to have answers to. Question one, why has Australia agreed to dispose of at least two Virginia-class submarines here? Question two, what facilities are needed and where will they be constructed? Question three, when will construction of the facilities begin and who will manage the project? No answer. Not even a single sentence. Defence, as usual, when they get something that they don't like, they just completely ignore it. What they rely on is public apathy because I think those three questions most Australians would like answers to. The, The same thing is with the ministers, by the way. I go to the department routinely because a lot of the stuff that I'm after is statistical information. But if you go to Richard Miles or, or, or Anthony Albanese directly, same thing. They, they just refuse to answer. And, and after a while, you start to wonder, what, what sort of democracy is this? At times, it feels much more like an oligarchy, the, these you know, stuff done in secrecy and, and no accountability and that sort of thing. To conclude on the, the point of the submarines and Osmian, uh, okay, uh, this insider just said, well, a solution will be found. When I also asked about why are we why are we taking second-hand submarines? What sort of insanity is this? Why not new submarines? And the answer was equally depressing. Oh, well, the Americans are actually doing us a favour by selling us second-hand submarines because we've timed this so that they will run out of life 
just as the specialised Australia-UK Orca submarines come online. I mean, what a nonsense. Who thinks like that? There are no guarantees about the timing of the Orca submarine. And on top of that, nothing precludes you retiring a class of anything early if you want to. I mean, you could go out tomorrow and buy a new car. And if you're wealthy enough, at the end of the week, decide that you want something else. So you get rid of it, even though it's got 25 years of life left in it. Again, this depressing thing of the Americans doing us such a favour with second-hand submarines is, I think, just complete nonsense. In that context, I have to, again, just make a very quick mention of the decision um, announced just in the last few days, or confirming the decision, that we're going to spend $10 billion on buying 20 more C-130J aircraft to replace 12 C-130J aircraft and ask the question, surely we could have had some form of evaluation looking at the C-390 from Embraer and the A-400M from Airbus, both well-credentialed airlifters. And my own feeling is that when it comes to dollars for capability, we could have done a far better job. Again, no disrespect to the C-130J. It's a fine aircraft. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with it. I just think that we could have done a much better value for money deal if we'd looked at the alternatives. That's all I think is is required, that we are prepared to think a little bit more broadly when it comes to some of these major acquisitions. $10 billion buys you a lot of heavy airlifting capability. And who knows? There might have been even some Australian industry content if we'd been prepared to look at the alternatives. Now, um, why am I in Bulgaria? As I think I've said previously, you know, journalism, it's a grind. It's, you know, you get a lot of abuse. It's long hours, a lot of stress. But um, on the other hand, you get to do some interesting things. And uh, this has definitely been an interesting trip for those of you not familiar with how the media works. Often companies organize media tours so that they can brief us on their products or their systems or whatever. Perfectly routine, perfectly normal happens all the time. Now, in this particular case, this has been a visit organized by the German shipbuilding company Lursen. Uh, they are the prime contractor for C-1180, the Arafura-class uh, offshore patrol vessels. And they thought that the Australian media would be interested in having a bit more visibility of the work that they're doing in Europe building corvettes. Something strange seems to have been going on with the project for some time. Navy have appeared to have lost interest in it. If they ever had, had much to begin with, they cancelled contract for the 40 mil main gun about two years ago and still haven't figured out what the alternative solution should have been when they could have taken that decision after about 10 minutes of thought. The speculation is, and I would say it's well-informed speculation, it was hinted at in the Defence Strategic Review, that rather than having lightly armed offshore patrol vessels, Defence instead, or Navy instead, have decided that what they would prefer is a fleet of heavily armed corvettes. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, that's what they should have specified back in about 2014 when this project had its genesis. They didn't. But the thinking has changed. Getting back to the media trip. 
Lersen is building C-130 Corvettes for the German Navy, but they believe of greater relevance for Australia are the two C-90 Corvettes that they're building for Bulgaria. Now, these are heavily armed ships. The C-90 refers to their length, 90 metres, but they could be stretched. Lersen say these sorts of design changes are low risk, that they do it all the time. Uh, I'm very much inclined to trust Lersen. They've been building ships for 120 years, highly successfully. And, and if they say, with the engineering backup, that they can do it, I have a very high level of confidence that's the case. Now, the C-90 weighs about 2,100 tonnes. It can carry missiles. A helicopter can land on it. If it was slightly lengthened, you could actually embark the helicopter with a hangar. It can accommodate quite easily an eight-cell Mark 41 vertical launch missile system. The company says that they could actually go up to 16 VLS cells without a lot of difficulty. They've also done the work to include uh, a CEA fixed-faced radar that would be mounted above the bridge. I've seen the schematics. They can't be released yet. It's preliminary work, but I can assure people that some thought has gone into it, and just to my untrained eye, it looks like a neat fit. The real sales pitch is that the company, because they're already building the Arafuras, they've got an established production line in Australia, Australian subcontractors, supply chain, all of that sort of thing. There's about a 70% overlap between the C90 and the Arafura class. They have the same main engines from MTU, the same generators, various subsystems. The, The Bulgarian Corvettes also have the Saab 9LV combat management system with consoles coming from Saab in Adelaide. And the company argues, and I've got to say pretty convincingly, that if they were contracted, they could switch pretty much seamlessly from building Arafuras. They'd use their existing supply chain and instead be producing highly armed, capable corvettes which one assumes are much more along the lines of um, what the Royal Australian Navy now wants. Now, okay, having just said that I'm in favour of of a competition for things like, you know, a future airlifter, in this particular case, I'm going to say the, the opposite. And, you know, I can see advantages of competitions always. Uh, but in this particular case, Lurson have the existing supply chain in Australia, they would need about a six-month design period to make sure or settle on the exact configuration that the Royal Australian Navy wanted, and then they could be cutting steel next year, with the first of these delivered in 2028, which is about two years faster than any other solution could possibly achieve. So in the interest of getting capability very quickly, relatively, into the hands of the Royal Australian Navy, they present a a fairly powerful, persuasive case. Okay, other people willing to or feel more than happy to contact me with suggestions for why we should do it another way, but for me, it's a no-brainer. Look, I'll just conclude by, again, a final few words on the decision 
it's now getting a little bit dated, on land 400 Phase 3, the infantry fighting vehicle. Congratulations to Hanwha. The Redback is a very fine bit of kit. Uh, of course, as journalist, I try and remain objective in providing an analysis of the, the competition. The Lynx on the one hand, the Redback on the other, both capable vehicles, but all of the feedback that I and a number of my colleagues were, were getting was that the Redback performed much better during the extensive test and trials phase. Also, uh, Hanwha, very good progressive company. They want to engage with the media. They want to engage with the with the Australian defence community. I, I can say that for, uh, for South Korea more broadly. The government of South Korea is looking for a much closer defence security partnership relationship with Australia, and they're going to see this as a positive. So uh, well done to all of those involved. Okay, uh, that's it for now. Um, Goodbye from Bulgaria. The next time that you hear from me, I'll be home back in Canberra. Thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.